This is Dr. Baba Kazizadeh. You are listening to the Smile Podcast, where I will be sharing with you my unique and holistic perspective on beauty, health, and wellness. Hello. <laughs> Millions of people have surgery every year. Or you could just get a boob job. Using targeted Botox can be a miracle. Smiling like that is a skill. Your surgery has been successful. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Smile Podcast. I'm Dr. Babak Azizadeh, and today I have a really special guest, Dr. Julie Strax, who hello, (laughs) (laughs) who uh, joins us today to talk about how do you become a plastic surgeon. That's really kind of what we're going to focus on. But within this, we're going to really discuss a lot of how do you get to a higher education level and how do you really it starts obviously in high school getting into college college getting into med school and so forth so today julie uh is uh finishing this in about four months her fellowship in facial plastic surgery and she's going to be done with her higher education and so today we're going to talk about um her journey and get some insight from her and I get to know her a little bit more. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, So my journey to becoming a facial plastic surgeon, um, like most people, started back in high school. Um, And, um, you know, at the time, I didn't know that I wanted to be a facial plastic surgeon specifically, but I did know that I had an interest in the biological sciences and in medicine. And so um, when I was looking um, at colleges, I I looked at colleges with that in mind. um, And... I ended up going to Emory University. Wonderful. um, And uh, they had a great pre-med program, and um, it prepared me well, I felt, for for, uh, medical school. Um, The medical school um, application process was was a little bit difficult. You know, you have to apply to many schools. It's very competitive. there are, there's, you know, a lot of testing involved, including the MCAT, and so you have to um, really prepare for that. Um, and that's a, a, you know, a long process in itself. Um, so I have a question for you. A lot of people ask, so I'll ask, do I have to actually be a biology major or a science major to go to medical school? Because that trend has changed dramatically from Sure. 30 years ago. What are what are your thoughts? I mean, what major were you? I was a biology major, uh-huh. but I absolutely don't think that you need to be. And in fact, um, I think sometimes it can be um, helpful in the application process if you're not, or if you have a double major or a minor in something that's not in the biological sciences. I think it makes you a more interesting applicant, um, frankly. Um, I was just very interested in biology, and so I liked all of all of the classes that you know were required as part of that major. Uh, additionally, Emory had a lot of um, you know varied courses as a liberal arts college, so um, I wasn't only taking um, biological science courses. I also had you know theater courses and um, history courses and and things like that that were actually required. And so um, I did get a broader education, but um, I think that um, having a different interest, a different major, actually makes you a more interesting applicant um, as a medical student, and I think it makes you an interesting, more interesting applicant as a resident as well. What did you do in college that, you know, there's as as they for really high school students now when they're applying, you know, they could have a perfect GPA, perfect SAT or ACT score, and they're just 
like everyone else. What what did you do in college that you felt like set you apart to be able to get into competitive medical school that that's really difficult? Well, I do think that it's funny because I talked to some of my friends who are at the same stage as me um, in our training, and I feel like we look at applications now and we every year we think to ourselves, I can't believe I, oh my God. I did this. You <laughs> yeah. know, like the applicants seem to be getting better and better and more interesting over time. Um, and so, yeah, it's not enough to just be a stellar um, student. You have to be, um, you have to be sort of a really multifaceted person and have lots of interests. And um, and so it's it's tough because, you know, you also have to at baseline be a really strong student. So yeah, I mean, if you don't have the grades, you're not getting it right. Um, and so for me, uh, in college, I, you know, I did my best to excel in my classes. I think that was, like I said, kind of the major thing. And then, um, I did some research on, on the side, um, in my summers, I spent my summers, um, in a lab doing, um, Parkinson's disease research, which didn't end up being what I did with, with my life, but it was something that was so of interest to me. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I just tried to sort of cultivate hobbies outside of the sciences, outside of medicine and school. And, um, and I think probably one of the biggest things along the way is just being a social person. It goes a long way. Um, so having people, you know, believe in you and, you know, try to support you along the way, um, has always sort of served me well. Um, through my process. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's holistically changed in healthcare as a whole, I feel, is, you know, 30 years ago, they just looked at your grades. And then they started seeing that, look, doctors need to be more than just smart. They need to be caring and compassionate and right. have a passion in something. So I think that just being a kind human being, I think, makes a huge difference in you know, when you're interviewing and so forth, it's a different process. They're looking for a different person than who's coming into college. Yes. I mean, I think for me, that has, that has always helped me along the way, being able to talk to people, make friends, you know, make all different types of friends and, um, and just sort of connect with people has been something that's helped me, um, kind of move along through the, the bedside know. manner. I yes. mean, that's what we want, right? Yes. yes. We want our so. doctors to be kind and understand us and listen to us. So right. that's, that's huge. So the MCAT is kind of the equivalent of the SAT, right? So yes. you took that, you applied and what happened? Where'd you end up going for medical school and kind of how did you end up in, you know, deciding what to do from there on? So, um, yes, I took the MCAT in, uh, in my junior year of college. Um, it, it's funny because you can't, I mean, you can, but most people have to take prep courses before taking the MCAT. So it's not just, you know, walking in and, and taking this, this uh, exam. It's really, it's a tough one. And so um, you prepare for it for many months before. Um, and then your MCAT really plays a huge role in where you even get you know, interviews in medical school. Um, ultimately, I uh, went to Temple University School of Medicine in Philadelphia, which is where I'm from. So that, you know, played a big role in my uh, decision mm -hmm. of, about where to go. Um, but, you know, I thought I had a great education there. Um, and it, um, it ultimately got me to where I am today. So now there are all these US world and news rankings and so forth for colleges, for med schools. Do you 
feel that that played an important role for you in deciding where to go? Was it more of like the gut feeling of when you were interviewing where it's going to be a good fit? Was it the location? What was like in your, I'm sure you got into many medical schools that were excellent. What made you, what do you, what, it, what were the real big factors for you in deciding where to go? For me personally, location played a huge role in where I decided to go. Um, I do think that um, US uh, News and World Report ranking is important. That being said, I think if you excel at your medical school, there's really no limitation to what you can do. Um, and so, um, you know, obviously everybody's list of important factors um, is different. But for me, location uh, played a really big role. And um, ultimately, I did my residency at the same institution. And so, um, you know, Temple really helped me get to where I am today. So I'm really grateful for that opportunity. So. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about med school. Because a lot of people, you know, to become a plastic surgeon or to get this higher education level, it's not just like, okay, I got into med school, now it's over. Right. Tell me a little bit more about your medical school experience. When did you decide to kind of, what the whole overall experience was? What is it, you know, academically, what does it look like? And then how did you decide to go into whatever residency that at that time? Sure. So um, medical school is obviously a very rigorous experience. Um, everybody that you're in class with is smart, you know, and so you're in a totally new group of people and everybody has achieved well um, up to that point. And so, um, you know, it's intimidating when you get there and suddenly you're in a pool of people that, um, you know, did just as well as you and, and so, um, and sort of, you have to sort of level up. Um, and then, you know, depending on how you do in medical school, it really determines what you can do with the rest of your life. And so, um, you know, you have to work really hard and get the grades that will get you to where you wanna be. Um, and so the first two years for me in my medical school were really about um, sort of achieving at the highest level I could possibly achieve at. And so, you know, you have, um, you have your classes and then after the classes end, you have to put in the work to study um, so that you can do well on your exams. And then my second two years of medical school were completely clinical. And so um, after those first two years, you're really um, functioning as a member of the team in the hospital. And so, you know, during that time, not only do you have to achieve academically, but you also have to prove yourself to be a valuable member of the team. And that's really where your social abilities can shine and can really help you. And so, um, you know, I felt that um, that was kind of the most interesting time in medical school for me. That's how you can really explore and see what sort of clicks for you. Um, a lot of times people think that they know what they want to do and then, um, and then, you know, they do their rotation and, and things completely change. Um, for me personally, I knew that I wanted to do something surgical. I knew that, um, really from the beginning of medical school. Um, and I had some experiences along the way in medical school that sort of led me to know for sure that I wanted to do surgery. Um, but it wasn't really until I did my, um, elective rotation in ear, nose and throat, had a neck surgery that, um, you know, it really kind of clicked for me that I wanted to do surgery of the head and neck specifically. Um, and, 
you know, once you realize what you want to do um, in terms of your residency, then you really have to zero in and, you know, um, focus your efforts on doing research in that field and um, really getting to understand um, what residency in that um, particular field looks like. Um, and then, you know, making sure that you get the test scores that you need to get into that field. So so there's another test for, for our viewers called the USMLE or part one yes. that's equivalent to the SAT, ACT, MCAT that becomes a huge factor yes. in, you know, how and where you end up for residency. Absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about the teamwork because this is kind of an area that not many people really know in training to become a doctor because it's not like, you know, you finish medical school and you're, you know, you know, someone's on the operating room table and you're doing surgery. Right. And on the other hand, it's also not when you finish all of your training and it's the first time you're doing a surgery on your own. But the teamwork I think I thought was really, really important and kind of you start out as a third year medical student and you are the lowest person on that totem pole. Yes. There's a fourth year <laughs> medical student who has who is doing a sub internship that has a little bit more power over you and right. then you have an intern resident fellow attending and so it goes on and on but that teamwork what what did you feel like when you were starting you know that first day of you know this clinical rotation where you were a part of a team like on a surgery team how did it feel and what do you what can you tell you know the listeners kind of how important that was in your growth as a person yeah i think that um so for the listeners that, that don't know um, kind of the details of how medical school training works, um, depending on your medical school, um, the curriculum can be a little bit different. But in general, you rotate as a medical student through um, basically all of the subspecialties. Um, so you do a surgery rotation, an internal medicine rotation, psychiatry, um, and um, some of the um, subspecialties. You get pediatrics, well. pediatrics, obstetrics. Yes. And so you get an opportunity to see what life as, you know, each type of doctor could be like um, and what, you know, working as part of each team is like. Um, and for me, I loved the energy of being on the surgery service. Um, I, you know, I felt that I would thrive in that environment and it's a very teamwork heavy environment and you have to be willing to um you know really do anything to help um it's like the military a little bit a little bit yeah. yeah um and if you can get on board with that and get excited about that um you know you you're not going to be doing the most interesting part of you know of the the team on that first day but if you can sort of buy in and say you know i just want to be a part of this great team that's doing great things for this patient then eventually you'll get there and you'll be the one sort of really providing the care um and so every little detail is important and so if you can if you can appreciate that as a medical student and you know feel like anything that you can do to help um is worthwhile then then i think that's how you thrive and um and i think um, that goes a long way in those people wanting you to be, you know, in their field. And you really need that because they, um, they, you know, help you get to where you need to be next and they'll write letters of recommendation for you. So, um, you sort of see where you fit in and where you think you'll thrive. And I found, and I think, 
um, most of my friends found that, you know, usually you pick where you fit in. Yeah, you know? I agree. You end up where you are supposed to. Now, the historically, part. there were, I think, biases against women in surgery. Did you feel any of that? Did you feel that, you know, there were challenges that you had to overcome that maybe a male counterpart, medical student, didn't have to go through that? As a medical student, no. Um, as a resident, I did feel it in some ways. Um, and I do think that huge progress has been made in this area. Um, in my residency program in particular, we were 50-50 uh, male and female. So I was not, um, you know, it wasn't like I was surrounded by all men. Um, but, you know, I still think that surgery and the surgical sus subspecialties have a ways to go in this um in this sort of space. Um, and um, I think, you know, conscious efforts are being made to make women more, um, you know, feel more comfortable in this. In this okay. um, we'll talk a little bit more about space. this because, you know, the work-life balance will come into play at mm -hmm. some point. And especially, I think it's pertinent as we get, you know, I think the way that one of the wonderful things I love about millennials I'm not a millennial, obviously, <laughs> is I do think that everyone consciously is thinking a lot more about work-life balance. And it's sure. not just all about work, 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 or home, home, home. How do you keep that balance and pa keep a path of, you know, a path that's healthy? So we'll talk about that yeah. in a little bit. But I think that's, you know, when I was in um, medical school, and this is, you know, in the 90s, um, I think there were, I think there was a lot more you know, stereotypes about, and I think, you know, I think women had a, you know, my female counterparts had a much harder time going into yeah. surgical fields. Um, and, you know, uh, I'm, I'm glad that that progress has been made, uh, sure. which uh, I think there's still a lot of room for the, you know, for improvement. Sure. I don't think we're there yet. Yeah. Um, okay. So you were in med school and you enjoyed head and neck surgery. Mm-hmm. And you ended up applying and getting into a residency program. How many spots were there at Temple for your residency? And how many people do you think applied for that spot? So there were two the spots. <laughs> okay. Um, and I think throughout the country, there were about 250 spots yeah. um, for, I want to say my year, almost 500 applicants. Yeah. Um, I do think that the... Um, the patterns have shifted from year to year, um, but in general, ENT still about the same. <laughs> is pretty competitive. Yeah. And I think there's there are many reasons for that. It's um, a really amazing and exciting um, field um, that allows you to really have your pick of what you want to do. So obviously, you can do something like facial plastic surgery, like I chose to do, and obviously, like you chose to do. Um, but you know, you could be a pediatric ENT, you could be an ear specialist, um, you know, a voice specialist. And so for me, when I was choosing at that time, I did know that I was interested in facial plastics, but- um, yeah, That's pretty cool. Yeah. Not many people in my generation were interested. I mean, that wasn't like a big part of, yeah, of the world. Yeah, I, um, I had some experiences in medical school, particularly um, I spent a summer doing some facial plastic surgery in Israel. Um, and so that really sort of had an impact on um, on the trajectory of my career. But, um, but, you know, I didn't know for sure. I just did know that I 
you know, loved surgery and I loved the anatomy of the head and neck. And I think something that's great about ENT is it gives you the opportunity to to sort of have your pick of all these cool different subspecialties. And it's a lot of, one of the cool things I found was it really truly, you, it's, a, it's a specialty that's geared towards communication. Yes. You know. Quality of life. Quality of life, form, function, you know, communication through smiling, communication through speaking, hearing, you know, your speak. I mean, there's so many, your voice. So it's kind of a very cool specialty and has, you know, as you said, I think the coolness about it is you can pick, you know, so many different avenues within that area that, you know, have really interesting form and function right. parts to it. Yeah, that's um, how I felt. So run through residency, your first day of residency. And just for the viewers and listeners, basically residency is divided into two parts. You have an internship year, and that's kind of your first year that you're, um, you know, you finish medical school. The first year after medical school, we call it an internship year. And that internship year can be, if you're doing head and neck surgery, it's going to be a surgically oriented year where you learn how to, you know, take care of patients in the intensive care unit, uh, you know, do uh, some emergency room, anesthesia, you know, general surgery, learn how to tie, sew, you know, do the basic surgical function. But I remember the first day of internship for myself. What was the first day of internship like for you? And I'm sure you know what you were doing that day and yes, what rotation I, you were I on. I remember, you know, the beginning of my residency and my internship specifically really clearly. Um, at the time, we were doing six months of general surgery, which I think um, for ENT residency programs now, it's changed a little bit. Um, it's a little bit more ENT focused, but I started out in acute care surgery on the general surgery, you know, team. And um, I remember, you know, feeling nervous, but excited. Um, it was, you know, I was the only ENT uh, intern um, on the team. So everybody else was a general surgery intern, but I, I liked it. I thought the camaraderie was really fun. Um, and so you make friends during that intern year that, um, that you keep throughout your residency training. And for me, I thought it was awesome because I went on to do my ENT residency, but you know, my general surgery friends were kind of right there along with me. And, you know, there's so much interaction over the five years that we're all there. And so, you know, even as a chief uh, resident, I would be kind of calling my general surgery friends, you know, for consults and we, you know, we would still talk and it's good to have that relationship with other services. So um, yes, it's a, it's a really exciting and nerve wracking time when you start, but you kind of make these bonds with people because you're kind of in the trenches together. Yeah, it's the first time you kind of have to make decisions yes. that you are responsible for. So an intern, basically internship is boot camp. I mean, this is like kind of like really, it is internship and fellowship, which we're going to get to, <laughs> there are, some are probably yeah. the two hardest years because <laughs> you are like basically the front line. When nurses have questions about patients, they're going to call you. When there's a missing medication, they're gonna call you. When there's an emergency, blood pressure is changing, some emergency, they're gonna call you. And you have to be able to say either you can take care of that problem, and if not, you gotta get someone that can help you take care of that problem. So there's a lot of pressure. Yeah. And, um, uh, and, and I think it's a very 
it's probably one of the most amazing years because you're a doctor now. Once you have your medical degree, you are a doctor and you have a responsibility to patients and you have this Hippocratic oath that you've made that you will do no harm. And that's the year that you're gonna have responsibility. So it's really kind of like, it's a cool year for me. We had two years of general surgery. So we really, we were in deep with all the general surgeons and all the other interns. And we were like really, really, I mean, it was a, it was a fun, stressful year, but it was really exciting. And that's when I think real, a lot of people ask, oh my God, when do you really, you know, you, you're still studying. You're not really, I mean, you are studying when you go home after being up for 48 hours, you go home and guess what? You got to learn all the things, but you're working, you're working, you know, in my era, maybe 120 hours a week or something like that. Right. And, uh, you know, some changes have been made in terms of the number of hours, but you are working a lot of hours. Yes. And yes, there, I mean, there have been duty hour restrictions. Um, I'm not exactly sure when they were initiated, but, you know, during my time in training, they were, you know, upheld. And so yeah. um, it's an 80 hour work week, which is still, you know, pretty, two full time jobs, yeah, right? It's, it's 40 hour work week times two. Um, but yes, you know, they speaking of progress, you know, they're, you know, they, they've been trying to make progress um, in in this field. Um, and I think they have made a lot of progress. Um, but, you know, on the flip side, you really do need that time to learn. You need I felt like I needed those five years to really get yeah. all the skills and knowledge that I needed in order to feel prepared um, to graduate. And, you know, for me, obviously I'm doing a fellowship, but, you know, many of my colleagues graduate and they begin practice. And so I think, you know, every minute of those five years is really important. And so um, it's a balance. Yeah. So residency, basically the length of residency varies from specialty to specialty. You know, if you do internal medicine, that's three years. Pediatrics, three years. General surgery can be five to seven years or eight years, depending on some programs require you to do research. Right. Uh, ENT had a neck surgery. Now all programs are five years. In my era, it was six years. So, <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, um, and so uh, then after residency, you know, you within residency, you decided, okay, you want to actually go a step further and right. get specialized within that. When did you make that decision? It sounds like it was pretty early. And how did you make the right decisions and moves to get to the next phase? So I did know when I started ENT residency that I was most likely going to be interested in facial plastics. Um, and for that reason, um, I was able to sort of... Um, start the planning process on the earlier side. Um, I think in residency, the best way to kind of um, get towards the fellowship that you want is to seek out mentors. And so um, fairly early on, I sought out a mentor who was an oculoplastic surgeon who really took me under his wing and helped me, I think, get to where Dr. I am. Dr. Alan Wolk. Dr. Alan Wolk. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I... I really respect him so much. Um, he is a really great mentor and teacher. And so, um, you know, he, you know, helped me with opportunities to do research, um, connected me with, you know, people that he thought I would work well with. And um, it's interesting how in medicine, sort of the more subspecialized you go, the more sort of mentorship focused. For um, sure. 
um, things become. And so, you know, who trains you helps get you to the next um, ne next level. And so, um, you know, working with someone like that who really cares about mentorship um, is huge. And so I would encourage um, even medical students, but, you know, more specifically residents to find people who you really respect and who are, can be really good mentors. And they really help guide you to where, you know, you want to be. I think in every profession, honestly, mentoring and mentorship and finding someone that you can emulate is the ideal way to go. There are a lot of obviously people like Steve Jobs that, you know, they didn't have anyone that, you know, they could get mentored. They were just unique themselves. Mm -hmm. But most professions, most, there is someone that you could look at and say, you know, that's someone I want to be like. Right. So I'm going to go pick their brains, spend time with them, even if I don't, I have to do it without getting paid and really get, you know, absorb what they've done and emulate that. And then you can create your own, forge your own path after that. But I think mentorship is huge. I still have so many people that I could say, oh my God, they mentored me in this particular area. This other person mentored me in this other area. So I really try to pick and choose and respect my mentors. I mean, there are still people that I call them doctor, you know, so-and-so. I can't call them by their first name, <laughs> even though I've been, you know, out of, you know, training for so many years. So as well. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's I think mentorship is a key part of life. And, you know, I think you're just kind of it's uh, uh, interesting how important it, it had been for you to get to where you're at. Yeah. And I think it made an impact into kind of the next phase for you. It for sure made an impact. It, it is how I ended up here. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we've talked a little bit about this, about how fellowship is really, you know, it fellowship is is mentorship really at its core. And yeah. so deciding where you want to do your fellowship, you know, obviously the fellowship directors have to choose you, but you also choose the fellowship directors and, um, you know, Obviously, you're my fellowship director. Yeah. So for and everyone who's has is not aware, okay. Dr. Strax <laughs> is actually my current fellow. Yes. And she's been awesome, and it's been an amazing year. But yeah, I got a call from Dr. Wolk, who knew Dr. Masri, who's one of my colleagues and one of my closest friends, and you know said, "Look, Julie is amazing, and she, you know, and you're, you know, and I think." Probably Dr. Wolk said, you know, you should look at our program yeah. because we have certain aspects that are, you know, good fit for you. But yeah, and so, you know, this year has been like one of the biggest, if not the biggest educational and growth learning years of my life. And um, I think, you know, the way I practice, you know, for my career will be, you know, hugely impacted by this year. And so, um, you know, medicine and surgery, like many other fields, but I think in a special particular way is so influenced by, by mentorship. Yeah. So. Yeah. So fellowship, I think, you know, it's important that to understand once you finish your residency training, you can go out and practice that area pretty much, you know, you could go to dabble in facial plastic surgery. You could dabble in, you know, cancer reconstruction you could double in a lot of different things but fellowships are really one or two years of time that you're going to really spend and fully get immersed into the field that you love and i think you know for for me as a as someone who trains fellows i love the mentorship and being able to you know help 
you achieve your bigger goals in life. And uh, it's it, it was one of the most formative years of my life, my own fellowship, uh, when I did that uh, many years ago. And I think it's a you know wonderful year to just kind of get to that next level. Now, why did you choose, you had been exposed to plastic surgery, you know, obviously in medical school. Why did you choose to take the pathway of becoming a facial plastic surgeon and not some of the other pathways? And maybe you could give us a little input on how many, there are a variety of different ways one can become, you know, one can do and perform plastic surgery. And, sure. you know, maybe we can kind of talk about that and why did you end up choosing this pathway? So the the two sort of main ways you can get at doing plastic surgery um, is you can do an ENT residency as I did and become a facial plastic surgeon. Um, or you could do um, a general plastic surgery residency, which is a five-year residency um, and a plastic surgery fellowship. Now, more recently, they have started um, residency programs that are direct plastic surgery programs, which um, are amazing and highly competitive. Um, I believe they're six or seven years, um, and they um, basically are um, specifically plastic surgery residency programs. And those were sort of just starting to come about when I was in medical school. Yeah. Um, so those are sort of the main surgical ways that you can um, become a plastic surgeon or a cosmetic surgeon. Um, then obviously you can um, you can do a dermatology residency and um, do most surgery and then- Which is skin cancer, skin you know, cancer and surgery and reconstruction. and reconstruction and injectables and fillers and Botox and- so and forth. you can sort of make that into um, co a cosmetic surgery career. Um, and, you know, there are many people out there that are not doing surgery, but that are doing, you know, injectables and lasers and things. And so they sort of have created a cosmetic practice um, themselves. And so, you know, there's a lot of interest in this field right now, obviously. Um, for me, I was really drawn to sort of the anatomy, pathophysiology of the head and neck. Um, I thought it was kind of the most interesting, sort of intricate, delicate type of surgery um, that you can do. Um, whereas for me, I felt like body surgery, um, it just wasn't what I was as excited about. Um, so breast and body and things like that, I just, you know, wasn't as excited about the surgeries, uh, those surgeries. And so that's why I chose ENT. Um, but, you know, there are obviously many ways you can can get to where you want to be. There are general surgery residents and general plastic surgeons who um, go on to be amazing facelift surgeons and rhinoplasty surgeons. And so, um, and, you know, on the flip side, there are some ENTs that, you know, do fellowships that sort of give you some training in body plastic surgery. And so um, there are many ways to to get to where you want to be. I think just knowing what your ultimate goals are um, is the most important. Yeah, I, mean, I think just it's very important when, you know, someone's seeking out a physician to see if they're the right doctor for them, that they, they do understand the the variables and the differences, and they understand that, you know, if you're doing a weekend course to do rhinoplasty, that the success rate of a surgeon that does that, not gonna be very, very high. 
same thing if you've trained, you know, in facial plastic surgery and you're doing a weekend co a course to do, you know, uh, breast augmentation, probably not going to be as good as someone who spent seven years focusing on that. So, you know, when you're looking at your uh, doctor's credentials, this is just kind of a sidebar. I think it's important, you know, to see what you're seeking them out for and what their training is. So if you're seeking out eyelid surgery, blepharoplasty, you know, for beauty, yeah, you could find a plastic surgeon that does it really well if they do a lot of that. Facial plastic surgeon, if they do a lot of that, or an oculoplastic surgeon that does a lot of it. But if you're seeking out rhinoplasty, you probably don't want to go to an oculoplastic surgeon that does it. You want to go to a facial plastic surgeon or a plastic surgeon. So this is kind of, these are very, very important areas that for safety and outcomes, which we always want our patients to have outcomes, that's really important. And I think, you know, the different specialties, subspecialties have different flavors and different experiences and so forth. So um, now, so you're finishing your fellowship. Yes. And you're in Beverly Hills, California for your fellowship. <laughs> it doesn't get much better <laughs> yeah, than that this is for, like for your, plastic yeah, surgery. You trained in Beverly Hills, California yes. for your fellowship. Tell us where you're going to go. How did you make that decision? How are you going to feel when you're finished in you know June 30th? Well, um, I'm excited. Um, you know, it's maybe it's sort of like that internship first day again. You know, you're excited, nervous, um, but I feel ready. Um, I feel well-prepared and well-trained, um, and I will be going back to Philadelphia, which is where I'm from, and so I'm excited to... Um, what part of Philly? I will be in Bryn Mawr, which is yeah. on the main line outside of Philadelphia, um, and I'm joining another facial plastic surgeon there, and um, I'm excited to serve the community, you know, where I grew up and where I'm from, and to bring all of this knowledge and... and um, skill from Beverly Hills <laughs> out to Philadelphia. Okay, cool. And it, what do you, what are the, what are you worried about in that? For, what, is, what do you think, you know, you've been, you're in your early thirties, you've been training and learning this very subspecialized field now, you know, basically from college till now for, you know, almost 13 years. Yes. Right? Yes. What are you nervous about? A lot of your friends have been doing their stuff for a decade now. Yeah, so in some ways, you know, I feel very ready to, you know, have my first, you know, job, not as a trainee, um, because as you said, many of my friends have been in the workforce for, you know, 10 years. Um, and so I am excited about that. Um, but on the flip side, you know, when you've been a trainee for, you know, if really taking medical school residency and fellowship for, you know, nine, 10 years, um, you know, it's going to be an adjustment. Um, but one that I feel that I will be prepared for, um, in talking to some other people about sort of that first year in practice, um, it sounds like, you know, it's a nerve wracking experience for everybody the first time that you're on your own. Um, uh, but sort of just, you know, believing in yourself and trusting in the fact that you've been well-trained and well-prepared um, to start, I think will be sort of the biggest thing. Um, and then just getting some experience under my belt. Um, I think once I get started, I'll, ready to go. I'll be ready. What would you say if 
someone's listening to this, and I almost think it's almost for any profession, physician, non-physician, what would you say is the number one thing that has allowed you to get to, because it seems like this was your dream, right? Because you went way before residency and you were in you know, a different country, you saw something that you really enjoyed. Why would you, how do you, how would you say the best way to approach reaching your goals of, you know, whatever it is, professionally at least? I think, um, so for me, I feel that if you're passionate about something, then you can do it. And if you keep that goal in the back of your mind always, but not to, you You kind of always need to have your eye on the next step. Um, take it step by step. This whole process is very long. And so if you're, you know, in college and you're thinking about, you know, your ultimate goal of being a plastic surgeon, there are many, many steps um, on, on the way. And so you have to always keep that sort of that passion and that goal in the back of your mind, but, you know, know that it's going to take you a long time. And so um, just be patient with it, get through, you know, the next step you know, each step along the way is important in getting to where you want to be. Um, I think specifically for being a physician, if you're not passionate about it, it's, you know, it's, it's a very long road. And so yeah. you have to, you have to really want it. Um, and I did really want it. I do really want it. Um, but it's not something that you, you know, you just fall into and like you said, do a weekend course and, and, you know, have the privilege of taking care of patients. It's, you know, yeah. at, at minimum 10 year, um, you know, training to, to do this. And so um, you have to be really be committed and and want it badly enough. And if you do, you'll get there. Yeah. And I, I completely agree. I think, first of all, you picked well. I think this is the best field. I really do. I mean, I, I just think that we have the privilege of doing something super innovative, help people you know, be able to, you know, be at the cutting edge of medicine. It's an amazing field as a whole. And, you know, I know a lot of people see the, you know, kind of the, what I would call the superficial side of it on TV and so forth, because it's so sensationalized, but it is a really rewarding. You're changing people's lives, quality of life, emotional, physical, so many different things. And then there's so many artistic aspects to it. You know, you're an artist, you're a scientist, you're an engineer. I mean, so it's super cool. So I think you're gonna be so happy, but I, I really do think you gotta love it. Otherwise, if you're going into it for the wrong reasons, and we know many physicians, and as you get older, you'll see even more, because I see a lot of my colleagues who are just not happy at what they're doing because they went into medicine for the wrong reason, or they went into it for the right reason by pick the wrong subspecialty to go into. And so um, just be passionate and love what you do. Life is too short and be in the moment. I mean, that's the recommendation I have for you. You know, don't look at, you know, you gotta prepare. I always have, I, I've all, I was always a, you know, prepare for the future, but be in the moment and enjoy, you know, your last few months and also enjoy every moment of, your practice and the journey, because there'll be another journey after this, because you're going to build whatever it is that you build and just enjoy every moment of it. And that's kind of the key thing, even though we're in our twenties, we really put aside a big chunk of it for our training, but I thought it was really fun. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I don't, you know, I think the cool thing about medicine and surgery too, is that 
you never really stop learning. And so what I've noticed in, in my mentors is, you know, you go to these meetings or, and, you know, you decide to change things based upon, you know, new literature that comes out or a new idea. And it's amazing that you can continue to learn throughout your entire career um, and evolve throughout your entire career. And I think that's something that's really special about medicine and surgery um, that will keep it fresh and exciting, you know, for many years. Thank you so much for your time. And it's been, it's been really an amazing uh, year uh, having you as my fellow. And uh, I think you're going to be, an outstanding one of the best and enjoy every moment. And thank you for your time today. And uh, for uh, our listeners and viewers, please leave us comments on this uh, podcast. Any suggestions on future podcasts, please rate us, let us know what we can do better. And we really look forward to our next podcast. And thanks again. Thanks for having me.